We're continuing our study through the London Baptist Confession, and just as a reminder here, it is the standard, doctrinal standard of what we believe and teach uh, in our church, and the goal of the series uh, is to not only introduce you to what is an excellent summary of the Christian faith, um, it's a mini systematic theology, uh, but also to show you why it's important so that we know what we believe and we know why we believe it. Uh, our present focus these last few weeks has been on the first principles. Um, everything is based upon the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, and who we are in relation to this. This is um, the first uh, six chapters of our confession. Uh, the first principles. We can't move forward in theology. We can't move forward and talk about salvation or justification or is that better thank you uh, or any of these things um, uh, until we we lay the groundwork and so that's our that's our present focus these last few weeks um, first principles um, where we've been the last couple of weeks is we've we've looked at the incommunicable attributes of God those attributes of God that we do not share, uh, and we looked at the communicable attributes of God, attributes of God that we share with Him by way of analogy. Um, so, for example, we, we looked at aseity and infinity and incomprehensibility. Those are aspects of God. Uh, aseity, God's self-sufficiency, His self-existence. He is in need of nothing. Um, he's outside of creation. That's not something we share with Him. He is infinite in every way, in being, in wisdom, in understanding, in power. Um, things of that nature. Uh, com- compared to the communicable attributes of God. Um, holiness and wisdom and love. Attributes that we can share with God. We may share with God. We do share with God by way of analogy. So, that's what we've looked at the last couple of weeks. And, and today... Um, we're going to look at two things in chapters, uh, chapter 2, paragraph 2 and 3. God's external relations, how He relates to the world by virtue of who He is, and God's internal relations, how He relates to Himself within the triune Godhead. So we've identified who God is in one respect. We've defined Him according to how He has revealed Himself in Scripture. Now how does He relate to things outside of Himself and of course within the triune God, uh, Godhead Himself? Um, I will say as well that uh, in many respects um, we're going to do a little bit of review because chapter 2, paragraph, uh, paragraph 2 really kind of summarizes what we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Um, anyway, so that's where we're at. That's where we're going to jump into. Let's go ahead and read chapter 2, paragraph 2. And um, again, it's kind of a, a summary and clarification of what we already looked at, but we'll make a few comments before we jump into the Trinity in paragraph 3. Chapter 2, paragraph 2. God, having all life, glory, blessedness, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, is alone in and unto Himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which He had made, 
nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever Himself pleaseth. In His sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to Him contingent or uncertain, He is most holy in all His counsels, in all His works, and in all His commands. To Him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience. As creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever He is further pleased to require of him, of them. Um, again, a summary of what we've already looked at. The uh, first sentence talks about his aseity. Uh, talks about his dominion. Talks about his omniscience. It talks about his holiness. Those are things that we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about. So we're not going to uh, cover this uh, in detail. But it does give a little bit of a further clarification um, of, of what chapter uh, one, uh, 2, paragraph 1 uh, captured and what it was saying. Um, yeah, just mention this. The importance of this, though, is that it shows, I guess it further specifies how God relates to everything outside of Himself. Um, not in virtue of His decree, not in creation or in covenant, that's to come later in the uh, confession, but just on the basis of who He is as God. Just on the basis of Him being Creator and everything else being not Creator. That's what it details. Again, if we want to know, how does God relate to us? Uh, The chapter on covenant theology details that. The chapter on creation details that. The chapter on His decree details that. That gives us further specification on how He relates to us um, um, in creation, in covenant, in relation to sin or grace or mercy. This is just basic. How does God relate to anything and everything that's not the Creator? Right? Make sense? God is Creator He's different than everything else. So, um, I'm going to take these one by one, kind of by way of quick review. I really just want to uh, um, focus on the underlined phrases here, if you'll see. We talk about His aseity and His dominion. God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of Himself, all-sufficient, alone, all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which He has made. Again, emphasizing aseity. God is independent from the world. He is free from the world. He's not tied to the world. Um, This is important because uh, in our day, you may not see it explicitly, But pantheism and panentheism um, are very prominent aspects of our culture and society. 
Who knows what pantheism is? All is God. That's right. Everything is God. Um, you know, we can say that, you know, animals are God. That would be like Hinduism and other uh, pagan religions are forms of pantheism. Uh, but it manifests el- itself in other ways. Uh, you know, Mother Nature, people talk about Mother Nature. People treat creation as if it's worthy of worship, as if, as if it's spiritual in and of itself. Pantheism is that God and the world are one. Buddhism, for example. Hinduism. A lot of that stuff. The oneness of the human spirit, Right? The circle of life, all of these things. But panentheism, who knows what panentheism is? God is in everything. More specifically, God is connected to everything. Panentheism um, is God and the world are connected that in the way that God needs us as much as we need Him. This has crept into even Christian circles. When we speak of like, God needed the world to manifest His glory. God needed us because He loved us. He needed that relationship. In some way, shape, or fashion, God and the world are connected. He can't be fully God. He can't be fully glorified. He can't be fully loving if the world didn't exist. That's panentheism. So this puts that um, aside. Ultimately, this statement, God's aseity, He created not because He needed anything, but simply because He chose to. Further clarified, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory in, by, unto, and upon them. God does not need the world to show his glory, first of all. God does not need the world, or the world doesn't add to his glory. As if he's great, greater glorified in and of himself because the world is here. No, that would imply that he is deficient of glory in some respect. Uh, Think of the analogy uh, like... uh, Now, the world reflects his glory, but think of the analogy in relation to like the existence of the sun. Um, You know, the sun and its rays um, are going to shine whether the earth is here or not. The earth doesn't change the sun whatsoever. But think of like maybe holding up a mirror to the sun. Right? It's going to reflect the rays. It's going to reflect the heat so that others see it. So others feel its warmth. But it adds nothing to the sun itself. So the world manifesting... Showing forth the glory of God doesn't add to His glory, but it does magnify it so that others see it. 
And that is, of course, our end of living as well. We live for the glory of God. We're going to talk about this in the next hour. Uh, we pray according, uh, we pray for the glory of God. We long for God to be glorified. We long for, uh, but not in the sense that, that He needs it or that it adds to His glory, but just simply so that other people see His glory. So it's manifested in an even greater way among creation. So that's what this is getting at. God is self-existent. God is independent. He is in need of nothing. And as I argued a few weeks ago, I really believe this highlights His love. His love for creating the world, for bringing us into a relationship with Him, not because He is in need, but simply to share Himself with us. Further, He alone is the fountain of all being. God is self-caused. God does not exist. He is existence Himself. And He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures. And this is really the application of all of this. He has to be um, all say, self-existent. He has to be free from the world. He has to be self-caused if He truly is to have sovereign dominion. If he's not independent of the world, he can't have dominion over the world. If he's not self-caused, then there's going to be something else he's going to depend upon that he won't have dominion over. So God has dominion. It's not something that's given to him. It's not something that he accomplishes. It's not something that he takes God's dominion is by virtue of His self-existence. That's why He has sovereign dominion over everything. Alright, now, keeps on going, omniscience and omnipotence. In His sight, all things are open and manifest. Nothing to Him is contingent or uncertain. God's knowledge is not dependent upon our knowledge or our actions or our existence. God does not peer into the future and see what we would do or what we will do and then decree based upon that. That would imply that God changes. That would imply that God learns and grows. That His knowledge is evolving. That His knowledge is bound by time. And again, that's a, very, that's a very popular view. It's a popular view in maybe what we call Arminian circles when they try to re- wrestle with predestination. God predestinates or He chooses, He elects, Ephesians 1.4, those unto salvation because He looks down through the corridors of time and He sees who will choose Jesus and who will reject Him and He elects based upon who would choose Well, without diving into all of that, at the very least, this is contrary to God's nature of knowing. God's knowledge is not dependent or uncertain upon our actions or existence. His knowledge is full, it is perfect, it is complete, past, present, and future. 
And then it concludes, He is most holy in all His counsels, in all His works, in all of His commands. There, he is most holy. Uh, chapter, uh, paragraph 1 uh, uh, uses that word most as well. It's in, indicating the highest possible. Right? Most holy. There's no greater holiness. He's most powerful. There's no greater power. All worship, all service, all obedience from all creatures even those who are not in covenant with Him, even those spirits and angels that are a part of the heavenly bodies and not part of this earthly, physical, um, uh, material creation, all owe Him obedience, whatever He commands of them, by virtue of Him simply being Creator. Anything that he may require. So this is a basic summary of how God relates to the world on the basis of him being God and everything else not being God. Before we turn to how God relates to himself, um, any questions or thoughts? Mark? No ultimate authority and a fundamental breakdown of creature-creator distinction. Um, you're right. It's the foundation. It's why it's one of the first principles, right? And, our, and I've talked about this before, but our default mode is to reason from us to God. Because that's how we basically relate to anything, you know? Like we, take, we start with our own experience. And, you know, so the analogy that I used is, well, God is called a father. And so let's look at earthly fatherhood. And then reason up to God to understand heavenly fatherhood. But, but that's the wrong way. And we'll see this in a moment when we talk about God, uh, the Son being the only begotten Son of God. That's the wrong way of, of, of reasoning from the world to us. Because God's revelation comes to us and says, no, 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 no. This is me to you. And, and this is the starting point of, of, of all true theology. Dick? Yeah, that's going to be dealt with in chapter 8. <laughs> um, uh, the incarnation. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the basic answer is that the incarnation did not change God in, what, in, in any respect whatsoever. Um, the, a human nature was added in the sense, or, or Christ took on a human nature uh, by way of addition in that sense. Uh, there wasn't any change in God, in God, in who God is. 
but it was God uh, entering time uh, in the form of a man for us and for our salvation. So, and that's detailed very specifically in chapter 8, so I can't get into it now. Certainly don't have time. Cody? And that's why I'm saying this is how God relates by virtue of creation. Yeah. Not in covenant, not even in creation. And you mentioned two kingdom. Well, I mean, this, the previous section just said, whatsoever he further requi- pleased to require of, of us. Like, all people owe obedience to God on the basis of him being creator and us being creature. Like, we don't even have to talk about the law. We don't even talk about righteousness and sin. Just on the basis of that distinction, we owe him. And that's on the basis we can call all people, whether in the common kingdom, and by the common kingdom we mean non-Christians who are part of this world, what obligation do they have to obey God? Um, we can call all people to obey him just on the basis of him being creator. Which we'll get into, obviously, when we get to chapter 7 in the covenant. All right, let's go on. Any other questions, comments? Rob. Also think of uh, in the New Testament where it talks about us as servants of God, only doing the duty that God has, you know, that, that we should do as uh, God's creatures, having that distinction between us and God, being made in His image and, and reflecting Him as far as what we are called to do as creatures. Yeah, and the New Testament promise in the gospel that the image of God is being renewed in us day by day as well. Like we are re- being remade to reflect Him and walk in that obedience that He's required of us. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's talk about then um, how God relates to Himself. Um, so far, the doctrine of God has been very generic, as Cody said, very transcendent. Um, otherworldly in, in a sense, uh, hasn't focused on the imminence of God, hasn't focused on God coming down to us and giving us commands and taking on our nature. It's been very generic. But the Scriptures don't reveal just God as God. We can't stop with paragraph 2. Um, as Cody said, that, there's nothing salvific about that whatsoever. Um, The scriptures reveal one God in three persons. And, of course, um, as Aquinas, as many others have pointed out down through history, the Trinity is not something that we can grasp by our own wisdom or natural understanding. 
One God in three persons is very specifically tied to the special revelation of God. There's no analogy of the Trinity in creation. It is a matter of God's self-revelation. But that's who God has revealed Himself as, as, one God, three persons, and this is what distinguishes the Christian God from every other false God in this world. Every other religion, false religion and false God. That our God has revealed Himself as triune. In this, paragraph 3, in this divine and infinite being, pointing back to two paragraphs prior, there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit. Of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. All infinite, without beginning, and therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. I'm like, man... I got 15 minutes to talk about the Trinity. This is like a 15-week study right here. But never fear, I'm going to leave you with some resources at the end if you want a further study. Um, First thing to note, three subsistences? What in the world? Why not say three persons? Well, what comes to your mind when you hear persons? That term? An individual. We kind of instinctively think when we hear three persons, what are we going to think of? Three individuals. Three people. Or three different people. But is that the revelation of God? Is God three different people? No. He's not. Um, the London Baptist here uh, corrects, <laughs> corrects, sorry, my true colors came out. Um, the London Baptist here refines the language of the Westminster and the Presbyterians by changing three persons to three subsistences. Um, the term subsistences uh, came to be preferred Uh, by Reformed theologians as more heresies popped up. Calvin particularly thought this was much more precise in light of the the other heresies. Um, So they changed this because subsistence means a particular being or existence. It's a scholastic, very precise term. Um, They weren't against the word persons. They used that in other places. We use that in other places. But subsistence is more precise. It's more philosophically accurate in light of the common heresies. And tritheism was a common heresy in that day. So they want to make it clear. We're not talking about three gods. We're talking about a particular, three particular beings or existence of the one God. For lack of a better term. 
We're all always grasping at language to try to define the Trinity. Um, but this is further clarified here. There's this, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Um, this refers back, this statement, to the previous two paragraphs. All that can be said about God in paragraph 1 and paragraph 2 can be equally said about the three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is ase and infinite and independent. The Son is ase and infinite and independent and immutable. The Spirit, the same thing. Everything in the first two paragraphs can be said about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There is no distinction in this. There's no division in this. You can't say, well, the Father is omniscient and the Son isn't. You can't say, well, the Father has more power than the Son. He's got, like, you know, the most power and then, like, the Son has a little bit less power or the Spirit has a little bit less power. All that can be said about God can be said about each person equally. Hang with me. We're going to come back to this. Well, then, how do we distinguish the three persons? If everything is in the Son and the Father and the Spirit equally, how is that not one God? Um, A common heresy here uh, in relation to this question is modalism. Um, or it's called in Pentecostal circles, Pentecostal oneness. Who knows what these things refer to? Have you heard this before? Jason? Yeah, so they take this, all that can be said about God can be said about three persons to the extent where they say that there is one God, a singular divine spirit with no distinction of persons, and he manifests himself in many ways, including as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So he manifests himself as the Father in the Old Testament, he manifests himself as the Son in the New Testament, and at other times he manifests himself as the Spirit. That's heresy, Patrick. Yes, Rob? That would be like putting on a mask, right? Just yes. On different masks. Yeah. Yep, yep. So he's an actor in this sense. He's going to dress up as the father and then later dress up as the son, but it's one person. And that's a heresy. We don't have time to go into all the implications and details of that, but the confession here is combating that right away. So the son wasn't schizophrenic when he was praying to the father? That's right, exactly. That's very good. Very good. Yes. And then, of course, when we think about, you know, the Father being pleased with uh, the, the, sac- the life and death and sacrifice of Christ on the cross, like, again, like, whose justice is being satisfied and, and 
all of that nature. The baptism, right? The Father speaking, the Son being baptized, the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. Well, there's a book, I can't remember the bad title of it, so I won't say it. And, uh, but it has an idea that the Father bears on his uh, hands the marks of the Son because the Father was on the cross also, uh, and the same with the Spirit. Yeah. Oh, lots of bad threads. Uh, this heresy, it's been around for a long time. It's common. Well, the question is, how then do we distinguish? If all that can be said about each person, doesn't that seem to lead to modalism? Well, this is how we distinguish. The three persons are distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. While there is one God, they are the three persons of the Godhead are distinguished from one another. They are truly identical, but they are also truly distinct. Oh, okay, this is getting difficult. All right. Well, uh, let me read you uh, Muller, from Muller's Dictionary of uh, uh, Latin and Greek Theological Terms. Uh, it helps us understand these properties, the term the, the confession uses here, these personal properties. He says this, what's a property? Uh, it's an intimate, incommunicable property. The incommunicable attributes of God and the personal properties of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, paternity, filation, and procession, which belong to the Trinity individually. Considered as descriptions of the relations between the persons, these personal properties are termed personal relations. Andy, can I get you to close that front door, please? Thank you. Now hang with me here. Don't lose me, all right? You gotta hang. You gotta just hold on here. The point three persons of the one God are distinguished from one another by their peculiar relationship to one another. That's what distinguishes them. The attributes of God don't distinguish them. The Father is omniscient. The Son isn't. That doesn't distinguish them. Nothing in the nature of God distinguishes them. Only in how they relate to one another. That's where this graphic comes in. And the confession says, The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. That's what distinguishes them. So the Father is unbegotten. He does not proceed. And He has paternity in relation to the Son and the Spirit. But the Son is eternally begotten. Sonship. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's what distinguishes them. I mentioned earlier, talking about when we think about the the Son being begotten. When we use that term, uh, you know, in earthly language, like, you know... um, the son was begotten by a father. We're talking, we think in terms of um, being begotten 
within the framework of time. That there was a time when the father, a father existed and then later he begot a son and the son came into existence. Well, that's again reasoning from creation to the creator, which is wrong. The, fa- the son comes from the father, but eternally. It's not um, a begottenness that happens in time. Does that make sense? The Son comes from the Father eternally. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son eternally. There's not a point in time where the Spirit proceeds. There's not a point in time where the Son comes into existence. So, no division in nature... No division in being, but rather a distinction in relative properties and personal relations. They are distinguished in their relations to one another, but not to us. So we kind of understand as eternal relations of origin. That would be like a key phrase as far as thinking of that eternality of they're, they're, they're one, they're eternal, uh, as far as how they relate eternally. Exactly, yeah. There's not a point in time, which, again, in creaturely categories, we want to put a point in time in there, but they eternally relate to one another in this way. Yes. So the personal property of the Father is to beget. We don't use that word anymore, but B-E-G-E-T, beget. Um, Not to multiply his substance by production, but to communicate that substance to the Son. That's what it means to beget, to beget. The Son is said to be begotten, to have the substance of himself coming from the Father. And the Spirit is said to proceed, to be breathed out, the language of Scripture, to receive his substance from the Father and the Son jointly. All in eternity. Melanie. What is the substance? Uh, deity. Existence. Subsistence. Being. So if this is like, oh my goodness. Um, I just, uh, wait a second, am I missing a slide here? I am missing a slide. Oh well, I'll wing it. So the Trinity... All infinite, without beginning, therefore one God who's not to be divided in nature and in being. And this is important. This statement guards against any attempt at ontological um, subordination. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, There's two popular, particularly in our day, um, ESS, eternal subordination of the Son, or EFS, eternal functional subordination of the Son. Um, again, I'm showing you why this is important. So, there are people who say that the Son eternally submits to the Father. And they use that as a paradigm for the relationship between men and women, or husband and wife. That Just as the Father, the Son submits to the Father, wives submit to their husbands, or even some people do the extreme, women submit to men in general. 
Um, in other words, they base their view on gender. Um, they ground it in the Trinity itself, which is a big no-no. I'm just going to say it right out. It's a big no-no. Gender distinctions um, are grounded in creation, not in the Godhead. So this guards against this ontological subordination as if the Son is lesser in any sense, even in role. Because a functional, uh, eternal function subordination would say, well, the Son does not submit to the Father on the basis of any inferiority, but simply by way of a helpful function. It's a function. He chooses to do so. There is no subordination within the Godhead. Now, the Son submits to the Father as creature, as incarnate, yes. But not as God. So, um, and again... Christology in chapter 8 will come back to this and deal with the incarnation as truly God and truly man and what that means. Um, if all this is, you know, crazy, sounds a little bit crazy or highfalutin to you, um, this is, it's simply the Nicene Creed. The, the confession is, is mirroring the Nicene Creed, which is the classic Western Trinitarianism um, expressed um, that the church has held to for. Well over a thousand years. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before our worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. There's that statement. Everything in God is in Him. He is begotten, but not made, not created. He is of one substance with the Father. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Whether you see it or not, because this is like drinking from a fire hydrant, what we just covered in the confession is the theological groundwork for this last statement that we worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if you don't have this careful language of the confession, that very easily can fall apart. And you can begin to say something like the Arians. There was a time, we don't know when, when the Son did not exist. Or the Son is inferior to the Father. Or the Spirit is inferior to the Father and the Son. Instead of saying, no, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are very God of very God. They are of one substance and they are to be worshipped and glorified together. And they are distinct simply in the way in which they relate to one another. All right. We're going to end on time, I think. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? Well, so that we worship God as he has revealed himself to us. That's kind of important. So that we distinguish the living God from the dead idols of this world. It directly relates to the work of God in redemptive history. The Father, Son, and the Spirit taking on their particular roles in redemptive history to accomplish our salvation. As well as understanding the attributes of God and how they are, um, of course... um, Manifested in the, in the three persons. 
It impacts our worship as well. In fact, if we were going to really start from square one and, 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 and see the Trinity is revealed in Scripture, it starts because in the New Testament, the book of Acts, we realize and we see people worshiping Jesus and then talking about God, uh, the Holy Spirit as God himself. And, and it arose out of worship that the church began to formulate this understanding of who God is as revealed as triune. But also, why does it matter? Because the doctrine of our Trinity, the confession says, is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. It's the most basic reality of who our God is. And if we want to enjoy communion with God, if we want to enjoy the comfortable dependence upon Him, we must know and understand the doctrine of the Trinity as best that we are able. We must know the one God. That He hasn't revealed Himself as three different gods. We must know that we can't know the Father without the Son. We must know that we can't be saved without faith in the Son. We must know that we can't be regenerated without the work of the Spirit. It is the foundation of our communion with God. Thus, we must seek to know it. Let us seek to teach this to our children and to our loved ones as well. God is revealed as triune. A couple of recommended resources. Um, the Trinity, an introduction by Scott Swain. Excellent. It's small. Um, what, maybe 80, 90 pages. It's a phenomenal resource that just came out. I think it was a book of the month at one point. Um, Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. Uh, a, a fuller treatment recently. Um, is also very good and it's kind of, you know, um, suitable for a layperson. Uh, Deity and Decree by Sam Renahan uh, covers the two chapters, uh, two and three. Um, so I, I highly recommend those resources if you want to know more. Um, that's the Doctor of God. Next week, we'll, Pastor Rob will jump into chapter three in God's decree. Are there any last questions or comments? Jason. Jason.